Yes, well, I hope everyone had a very, very happy and healthy Memorial Day holiday weekend. Uh, if not weather-wise, I hope hopefully otherwise. Here in the Northeast, the weather was abysmal, although even though it was forecast to be terrible all three days, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, Monday actually turned out to be a decent day, so we were able to get out with the family and do a little bike ride and enjoy the sunshine after all the rain we had on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show, and you can do so in one of three easy ways. Simply go to either the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store, whichever device you use, and search out the NPO podcast and click subscribe. You'll be notified of new episodes uploaded. You'll be able to leave reviews and make comments. And we please ask that you do and leave some positive reviews and comments. The more reviews and comments we get, the faster the show will grow and the more we can expand our offerings and bring more to you in the way of news and information. If for some reason you would prefer to use a third-party podcast aggregator app, as opposed to your native podcast app, simply download the free Podbean app from either of those two app stores. Podbean is our hosting service, and you will be able to gain access to the show that way. And you'll also be notified when new episodes are uploaded, and you'll also be able to leave comments and reviews. So please do so. Now, prior to yesterday, with the break in the weather, we were pretty much apartment-bound and uh, watching TV. And Memorial Day, they usually play a lot of movies and shows related to the war. Uh, we didn't watch too many of them this year, uh, many of them that I, I had seen before, but something caught my eye. And I just, it struck me as kind of odd. There was a special on about John Gotti Jr., and the government's relentless pursuit of him, even to the point of them violating in the Southern District a plea agreement where they said they would not go after him anymore and he was taking the plea in the interest of closure. And shortly before he came out, they tried him again, and they tried him again and again, and finally he was acquitted, uh, and they, they had to leave him alone. It was a long, hard battle, a long-fought battle, but the thing that struck me as odd is that, yes, I know that John Gotti was a member of the Cosa Nostra, and so was his son, and they have uh, accredited him with having done many bad things. Uh, to his credit, he also did some very good things, but yes, I know they credited him um, with doing very, very bad things. But as I sat there and watched the show, this documentary with interviews from various people who played a part in the trial, from the judge to the FBI agent who was in charge of the strike force, Agent McDonald. If you saw Agent McDonald, you would recognize him. He had bit parts in the movie Goodfellows. He was the FBI agent that sat down with um, the character of Henry Hill and his and his wife as they were talking about going into the witness protection program. And I found him quite amusing and laughable as he was denigrating the Gaudis and saying, you know, these people were made out to be heroes. Uh, 
All they are is thugs and gangsters. Everybody forgets that. And why did I find it as laughable? Because given everything we now know about the FBI and what they did to former President Trump, the setups of campaign officials, the falsifying of records to a FISA court, one of the most secretive, most powerful courts in this country, the falsifying of testimony, the changing of emails, the scams that were going on, the collusion, the taking of sides in an election, and the breaking of bread with their, his opponent, Hillary Clinton, using information paid for by her to start a phony investigation in a coup attempt, nothing short of a coup attempt, to depose a duly elected president of the United States. You have to ask yourself, who are the real thugs? And who are the criminals? You can say what you want about La Cosa Nostra and the mafia, whatever name you choose to give them. They make no apologies for who they are. They make no secret for who they are. But what they aren't are hypocrites. They don't claim to uphold the law. They don't claim to stand for justice. They don't claim to stand for all that is cleaner than the driven snow and then soil and defecate upon the United States Constitution and all that we hold dear the way the FBI does. There is no justice in the Department of Justice. That, I can assure you. And that was laid plain for all to see when this Durham investigation and all this rolled-up-sleeve pseudo-anger came to nothing because they were able to steal an election. And it was stolen. So while the feds and the FBI go after local law enforcement with an almost vengeance for every little thing, they are the ones who are the real thieves. Much in the same way the American military has been belittled by the left. They wish to defund the police. They wish to defund the military. All these weapons that we have that we need to preserve freedom could be better spent just giving out more welfare to the, for, to the poor. And for the poor, read the shiftless, the lazy, the worthless. People who really come here to work do just that. They work. They disdain public assistance, and they do everything they can to distance themselves from it. But I found a very interesting article um, about military men. Military men who, after serving their country in the military, go on to serving them in politics. And as it turns out, former generals who rise to the rank of president, commander-in-chief, seem to be the most anti-war presidents, the most peace-loving presidents, the best at diplomacy that you could ever ask for, because they understand war, they have seen it firsthand, they understand its horrors, and that's what makes it a thing to be avoided. Excellent article here in the Epic Times, written by Conrad Black, entitled, Generals Have Brought Integrity to the Presidency. I'd like to give you something from it. It's speaking about Memorial Day and a focus on the role of the Commander-in-Chief. Ten generals have been President of the United States, all of whom served in combat. Washington, 
George Washington, I mean, Andrew Jackson, William H. Harrison, Taylor, Pierce, Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, and Eisenhower. In addition, Teddy Roosevelt was a much-decorated combat colonel in the Spanish-American War, and William McKinley was a decorated Civil War captain. Harry Truman was an artillery captain on the Western Front in World War I. John F. Kennedy, of course, was the famous commander of PT-109, not a general, but a military man. Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford were all decorated junior officers in the U.S. Navy in World War II. President Carter was a Navy submariner between wars. George Herbert Walker Bush won the Distinguished Flying Cross when he was 20 as a combat pilot in the Pacific. He was shot down, rescued by submarine. And a number of prominent military officers ran unsuccessfully for president. Many other prominent militarists have been courted as presidential candidates, including Generals George Marshall, Douglas MacArthur, Colin Powell, William Tecumseh Sherman, the man who famously uttered the line, if nominated, I will not run, and if elected, I will not serve. None of the senior military officers who served as president initiated any wars, and most were careful while promoting the national interest and expressing it forcefully when necessary, and were distinctly war-averse. Little known, but I'll mention it here, President Eisenhower promised to, quote, go to Korea in his campaign of 1952 to resolve the war there. And he did so by having senior officials of the government of India advise Chinese diplomatic representatives accredited to India that if the People's Republic of China did not start taking the negotiations for an end to the Korean War seriously, he would have to consider the use of atomic weapons to achieve that end. The armistice was signed shortly afterwards and has been in effect for 48 years. Now, I find that interesting because the use or threatening use of atomic weapons was exactly what Douglas MacArthur had proposed. He wanted the Yalu River to be bombed. He wanted to prevent the Koreans from getting in. He wanted the parallel bombed. There's a lot of things that he could have done. And he was roundly denounced for it, and Truman recalled him for that and other things. But it's funny how his general advice, used as a threat to the Chinese, brought them to the table and resulted in an armistice that is still in effect. Additionally, President Eisenhower strongly advised against military adventurism in Cuba, and both he and General Douglas MacArthur advised President Kennedy and President Johnson not to commit combat ground forces to Vietnam. And once they had done so, they both advised those men to cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail. There was an argument for intervention that President Kennedy and Johnson found persuasive, but there was no argument, once having intervened, not to follow the advice of the nation's two senior generals, and victorious theater commanders to cut the supply of men and materiel from North to South Vietnam, as they urged. In 1955, mainland China was threatening an invasion of Taiwan, as they are doing today, the article goes on to say. 
and were shelling the islands of Quemoy and Matsu, just offshore. The Congress overwhelmingly voted President Eisenhower a blank check to use any degree of force he judged necessary in dealing with the crisis, specifically including nuclear weapons. Five times in the following year, the Joint Chiefs of Staff filed into Eisenhower's office and asked him to authorize the use of nuclear weapons against the People's Republic of China. On each occasion, Eisenhower declined and asked what the justification would be for such a drastic measure that would inevitably cause great loss of life. And the answer was always to prevent an amphibious invasion of Taiwan. This is an excellent article, and I, I advise you all to read it. But Eisenhower was smart. Eisenhower, I'm talking now, was there when D-Day was planned. He authorized D-Day. And most people don't realize D-Day represents one of the great amphibious landings in the history of modern warfare. In fact, only the United States and the Allies have ever successfully pulled off an amphibious landing of that magnitude, and it was almost a disaster. The beaches that the Americans hit were the most heavily fortified, and the invasion was almost stopped on the beaches. And had they been, the whole Second World War could have taken a different turn. So Eisenhower pointed out, I'm continuing now with the article, that the Formosa Strait was more than three times as wide as the distance traveled by the invasion fleet for the Normandy landings on D-Day in 1944. He had been the commander of that operation, and it still stands as the greatest amphibious invasion in the history of the world. And the Allies had absolute sea and air superiority. 12,000 aircraft and 5,000 ships. Whereas in 1955, the United States had absolute air and sea superiority in the Formosa Strait, not the Chinese, and full aerial reconnaissance of any Chinese invasion capability. An amphibious invasion on the part of the Chinese would have been a suicide mission. Just to show you that generals are not such bad presidents. Those who have seen war are those who most earnestly attempt to avoid it. But back to the elections having consequences. Yes, we know the FBI are a bunch of thugs. Yes, we know that the law was turned on its head, and we also know that the election was stolen simply by the sheer weight of numbers and the mathematics. This we know. We're told that President Trump was unpopular, and that's why he was not reelected. But unpopular presidents usually lose votes vis-a-vis their election in their re-election attempt, not gain them. Barack Obama, the perennial popular president, according to the media, had three million fewer votes when he was successfully and easily re-elected. Trump, on the other hand, had 12 million more votes, and we're to believe that he wasn't re-elected. And we're to further believe that although Trump's vote total in a losing effort was greater than any other previously victorious president, we're led to believe that a man who couldn't get the nomination once after having tried three or four times, having never left his basement, never campaigned, and never uttered a word, gains more votes than Trump does. 
the most votes in history. It doesn't add up because it didn't happen. And the damage continues. But there may be a stop to the damage. Things are happening. Arizona is more than 50% complete with its audit, and we wait to see what happens there. Pennsylvania legislatures are now traveling to Arizona to observe the election audit. As reported here in the Times, a delegation from Pennsylvania is set on Wednesday to tour the audit taking place in Arizona's largest county. That would be Maricopa County. The delegation will visit the Arizona Capitol to meet with members of the Arizona legislature before touring the audit at the Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Phoenix. Quote, I kind of see this as a fact-finding mission to see what's happening on the ground in Arizona. So said State Rep from Pennsylvania, Rob Kaufman. Also traveling to the state uh, of Arizona to observe the election audit were Senators Doug Mastriano and Chris Dush. All of these lawmakers, of course, are Republican. When they were asked if the trip could lead to a similar audit in Pennsylvania, Dush told the Epic Times, I can't say that yet, but if we bring some substantial information back with us, I could see it happening. That means if they get an ounce of encouragement, you may see them press for an audit in Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, Ken Bennett, the Arizona Senate's audit liaison, told the Epic Times that he did not have further information on the visit beyond what his team posted on Twitter. The Arizona Senate had ordered that election uh, audit after the 2020 election. Months of court battles ensued with Maricopa County resisting subpoenas of ballots, machines, and other election materials. The county ultimately handed over most of the subpoenaed materials after a judge sided with the state Senate. The audit started on April 23rd, and auditors are about halfway through the nearly 2.1 million ballots cast in that county alone in the presidential election. So, you don't uh, know how this is all going to turn out. You may see this audit fever spread to the other states where the votes were rigged. Georgia, perhaps Michigan, and other places. But what has been the biggest fallout aside from economic disaster that Joe Biden has visited on us with the cost of gasoline skyrocketing and his closing of the Keystone Pipeline. Immigration. But apparently many facets of this country, many quarters of this country, are dealing with illegal immigration. First, the Supreme Court ruled and gave a bit of a hit to the Biden administration. How so? Well, they issued a very, very significant ruling on asylum. They ruled that asylum applicants bear the burden of proof, not the government. Unanimously ruling against a Chinese asylum claimant, the United States Supreme Court reversed the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, finding that immigration judges don't have to explicitly state that an asylum seeker's story isn't credible when finding against him or her. The court's opinion is in the case of Garland versus Die, and it was written by Justice Neil Gorsuch. Thank you, President Donald Trump. Quote, the Ninth Circuit, this is what Gorsuch wrote, the Ninth Circuit has long applied a special rule in immigration disputes. The rule provides that in the absence of an explicit adverse credibility determination by an immigration judge 
or the Board of Immigration Appeals. Meaning, unless the judge says, I don't think this person who's applying for asylum is credible, or if the Board of Immigration doesn't say the same thing, absent that explicit mentioning of a credibility issue, a reviewing court must treat a petitioning alien's testimony as credible and true. That means, unless a court said specifically, your testimony is not credible, any subsequent court has to treat it as credible, which is lunacy. Gorsuch continued, the absence, the, the, accepted st- sorry, the accepted standard for reviewing credibility is highly deferential to immigration judges who work for the U.S. Department of Justice, he wrote. The Ninth Circuit's rule mistakenly flips this standard on its head, describing the appeals court's invented criteria as an outlier. In the case at Barr, Chinese national Ming Dai claimed he was beaten and arrested in 2009 for trying to prevent Chinese authorities from aborting his second child under that country's now rescinded one-child policy. He testified that when he tried to stop his wife's abduction, police broke his ribs, dislocated his shoulder, and jailed him for 10 days. Dai said he lost his job, his wife was demoted, and his daughter was denied admission to good schools. He came to the United States on a tourist visa and sought asylum shortly after arriving. Citing federal law, Gorsuch wrote that the burden rested on Dai to prove that he was a refugee. That is, someone unable or unwilling to return to China because of persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution for failure or refusal to undergo involuntarily sterilization or other resistance to a coercive population control program. He failed to disclose, however, the fact that his wife and daughter had already traveled to the United States and voluntarily returned to China undercutting the claim of a fear of persecution at home. Dai, quote, hesitated at some length when confronted with these facts, according to the immigration judge, and then admitted that his daughter returned to China to go to school, his wife returned to her job, and her elderly father, uh, and that Dai didn't have a job in China to which he could return. So you see, there's a reason for these things, and we have Gorsuch to thank for bringing a little sanity back to this. I mean, if every person is automatically deemed credible every time they make an asylum claim, we would be bursting at the seams with all sorts of people claiming asylum. And it seems to me what happened to this man, although contemptible and abominable, is something that could happen to anyone in China uh, by virtue of the fact they're living under a totalitarian communist regime. Does that mean we're to take the whole two billion people into the United States because any one of them could be treated this way at any given time. It's ridiculous. Uh, and, and Gorsuch noted in his decision that the Board of Immigration Appeals specifically highlighted Mr. Dai's family's voluntary returning and his not being truthful uh, about it as detrimental to his claim. So very interesting developments at the Supreme Court level. Meanwhile, Biden Sleepy Joe himself, has formally ended through his uh, Department of Homeland Security, Trump's remain in Mexico policy. Now, it's kind of hard to really understand what was wrong with Trump's remain in Mexico policy uh, and what was um, so bad about it 
that you'd want to go out of your way to undermine it. All it was was that if you were apprehended at the border, illegally crossing into the United States, and you were seeking to come in to the United States, you would be returned to Mexico. The program was implemented in 2009. Now, reports about the program have said more than 60,000 people were enrolled in this program. These were asylum seekers and illegal immigrants who presented themselves to U.S. Border Patrol officers or were arrested along the U.S.-Mexico border, and they were sent to Mexico, where they would remain for perhaps months of immigration court proceedings, and then they would come back here. He eliminated it. He eliminated it. On February 2nd, the president called on agencies responsible for enforcing these rules to review it and get rid of it. According to this memo from the DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, the program didn't adequately or sustainably enhance border management. How so? How does keeping people who have no business to be here in the first place out of here not enhancing border management? Quote, Having now completed the further review undertaken pursuant to Executive Order 14010 to determine whether to terminate or modify MPP, and for the reasons outlined below, I am by this memorandum terminating the MPP program, which is the Remain in Mexico program. I direct DH personnel to take all appropriate actions to terminate MPP, including taking all steps necessary to rescind implementing guidance and other directives or policy guidance issued to implement the program. Moreover, in making my assessment, I share the belief that we can only manage migration in an effective, responsible, and durable manner if we approach the issue comprehensively, looking well beyond our own borders. You stupid SOB, isn't exactly that, isn't that exactly what Trump did? He looked beyond our borders by saying, hey, guess what? Stay on the other side of the border in a Mexican uh, uh, jail or Mexican custody while we review your case and decide whether we want to allow you in here. You don't just get to sit here where we have to clothe you and feed you and take care of you. We like to help people, but we can't help everybody, and we certainly can't pay for it. Schmuck. Look beyond our own borders. It's exactly what he was doing. Contrary to statements... Republicans have criticized it. Contrary to statements from your administration, the border is neither closed nor secure, saying the surge of illegal immigration is now spilling over the border states into all of our states. This was a statement from the GOP governors in a letter sent to the administration calling on officials to take action. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection in April said that there were 172,000 encounters between Border Patrol agents and illegal immigrants in March, including 19,000 unaccompanied children. This is a crisis. We would be going berserk if we had that many unaccompanied children coming to the attention of regular domestic law enforcement in this country if they were U.S. citizens. People would be up in arms. To say that we're going to just close our eyes to this and do nothing is ridiculous. And there are other other casualties besides these children and these people who are being shaken down by the drug cartels and those who are not being shaken down by the drug cartels and are crossing our border anyway are themselves part of the bloody cartels here to facilitate the importation of narcotics into our country to further uh, uh, accelerate our moral decline. But 
Texas counties are pushing back. Those other victims I was talking about, how about the people that own property along the Rio Grande and other parts of the Texas-Mexico border? Texas counties are now starting to charge illegal aliens with child endangerment and trespassing. Tens of thousands of illegal aliens evade Border Patrol every month, hoping to slip undetected to large cities up north. Well, now they're being confronted by sheriffs, and these sheriffs have began arresting them for trespassing, evading arrest on foot, and endangering the life of a child. As a result of no solutions coming forth from the federal government, these counties, these sheriffs have taken it upon themselves to look at all possible means to rein in this crisis. Quote, I'm going to start here locally. If we catch them, we're going to start prosecuting these people that are trespassing on y'all's property, said Kinney County Sheriff Brad Coe. He told this to an apparently very appreciative crowd in Brackettville, Texas, on, back on May 22nd. And whatever other legitimate charge we can stack on there to try to deter them from coming to Kinney County, we're going to try to hold these people accountable. The neighboring county of Edwards County is also doing the same. They would start charging trespassing on June 1st, said Sheriff Coe, and he provided ranchers with a form, a sort of snap-out form, that they could sign in advance that would automatically authorize the sheriff to file charges on their behalf if they caught someone on their property, saving the rancher from having coming into town to press charges every time a trespasser was caught. And for many of these local ranchers, it's apparently something that happens on a daily basis. Coe gave an example of his office recently filing child endangerment charges against a woman who bailed out of a moving vehicle that had been pulled over by a deputy. The woman grabbed her seven-year-old child and ran into the scrub without food or water. The deputy caught her and the child and then called the sheriff to ask what she should do with them. And the sheriff said, now's the time to start. Let's file charges against her for endangerment based on the fact that she ran into a car. Listen, I've never been down to the border itself. I've been to Galveston, Texas, but let me tell you something. I've been to Nevada. I've been to the desert. I've been pretty far south in Texas. This is some inhospitable, tough country. You're a a woman. You have no supplies with you, no bags, no food, no water, and you're going to bail out of a car, evade law enforcement at this time of year on the Rio Grande with a seven-year-old child where it can reach 90 degrees, 110 degrees during the day. What are you going to do for shelter? Where are you going to avoid the heat? No food or water. That's a very valid case of child endangerment. Now, this woman and child were apparently turned over to the U.S. Border Patrol, and the sheriff's office will present the case of child endangerment to a grand jury to see if it's a valid case for prosecution. Now, at least they have it in the system. So if the Border Patrol, in their infinite wisdom, actually, it's not the Border Patrol, it's the federal government, if acting at the behest of DHS, they release these people, uh, allow them to stay in or send them. They send them back to Mexico, no big deal. But if they let them stay and release them into our midst, and these people now come to the attention of the local Texas authorities, there's going to be a warrant out for them for this child endangerment case. And she's going to get locked up, and they'll put her uh, a warrant for her arrest and put her into the system. It says, if we do arrest her and she gets sentenced to a year or six months, whatever the case may be, if she ever tries to file for some type of assistance here or become a citizen, that would be a check mark against her. Some type of consequence has to be there. Border Patrol 
detects daily an average of around 1,000 illegal immigrants who evade capture along the southern border. The number of those who pass undetected is impossible to estimate. So it's heartening to see that the local law enforcement on the border in Texas are taking this issue to heart. We can only hope that similar action is taken in the state of New Mexico and Arizona, Nevada, and California, any place where our border meets that of Mexico. It's also poetic justice that this sort of movement should come from the local authorities, because it was always the intention of our founding fathers that the primary governance of this country should be local, that it should come from the local cities, towns, sheriffs, police departments. No reason for a local law to be insufficient. No reason for that whatsoever. The hallmark of conservatism was that never have a federal law where a state law would do. Never have a state law where a local law would do. So it's very, very reassuring that these Texas sheriffs are getting together, thumbing their noses at the Fed, and saying, this is our county, this is our land, we're going to take care of business. And here at National Preview Online, we're going to continue to take care of business. So please subscribe. Please tell your friends about us. Email us at nationalpreviewonline at gmail.com if there's something you'd like us to cover. Email me if you'd like me, Jamie Dury, to speak at one of your local Republican events. We travel all over the country if need be. Very big here in the Northeast, but we'll travel anywhere in the United States. And tell your friends about us. Share the show. Because we really love to see more people be subscribing to this podcast because we have a lot that we want to say. And we want to tell you right now to stay tuned because within the next week or so, we'll be doing our episode on the corporate woke culture in America, which seems to be gripping uh, companies with long-standing histories in this country that ought to know better. So don't miss that. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.